and welcome to episode 15 of the Bucketless Gamers podcast. I am, as usual, Eddie, and I am joined once again by my co-host, Jay. Hello. There he is. And today we are looking at two Zelda offerings. We are looking at Zelda, uh, Zelda 1, that is, for the NES, and the Wind Waker, which was on the Nintendo GameCube in 2001. So yeah, uh, we will start with Zelda 1, seeing as it's the oldest. Um, in fact, it's one of the oldest games Period, I think, really. <laughs> yeah, especially on the list. I mean, does Tetris probably predates it, maybe? I don't know. Actually, no, I don't think it does. I think it is, because it's 1986, so it's literally the year we were born, unless we were born in different years, and I've never realised that until just now. 1985, mate. Oh, yeah. All right, fair enough. It was the year I was born. So, yeah, I, was, I probably wasn't alive when this came out, initially. <laughs> and I And I couldn't hold it. I couldn't hold the games console when it came out, so... <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't obviously play it when it came out. I can't remember exactly when I played it first. I think it was on the that disc that you got with GameCube, if you bought the pack in and you got a, like Ocarina and this on a, on a disc, and was Majora's Mask on it as well? It's like a little yeah. compilation disc. And it had Zelda 1 on it, and I think it had some like Master Dungeon modes as well, didn't it, on there as well. So you got this hefty little Zelda disc when you bought a GameCube to keep you busy. And yeah, me and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Kev, decided to play Zelda 1 instead of Ocarina or Majora's. And I hated it initially because it was a huge step back to what I was used to in Zelda. So looking at sort of a link to the past and, and those 2D ones, that's where I was in, in the sort of what I expect from a 2D Zelda. And then to go back to this initially, I was like, this is horrible. But the more we played it, the more I really got into it and wanted to finish it. And, and we ended up playing it for hours trying to, to get to it. I don't think we ever actually did because it's 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 a game I'd say you need a guide for. Like back in the day, you probably had much more time to spend figuring things out. But I think even back in the day, Nintendo Power did a guide for it fairly quickly because to say there are cryptic parts of it would be an understatement. Some bits of it just, unless you know what you have to do, I don't know how people figured them out. It must have been frustration. And like, well, because one bit, the, the bit that always springs to mind is you have to just burn down a random tree, don't you? And there's a set of steps underneath it. Why would you know to do that? And I think it was frustration. I think someone just went, well, I can't figure out what else to do, so I'm just going to set all the trees on fire and made that their mission, and then actually that is what you need to do. So, yeah, if you've got a guide, it's fairly straightforward. The dungeons are a bit tricky in parts. Uh, the, the difficulty does ramp up towards the later dungeons. Yeah, I, I think um, they... I don't want to touch on um, A Link to the Past too much, but they do carry that bizarro logic over quite well into A Link to the Past because there are several bits where you just... Stu- you you get told it's over in the far corner of the map that you need to go and you get halfway there and it's like, oh yeah, by the way, you need to pick up this bush and there is some steps underneath it in order to get underneath the water that's causing you the issue. Uh, it's like, oh, thank you for that. I couldn't have explained it then. Yeah, it's, it is... It's one of those where they made it with devilment in mind, I think. And we're like, yeah, we'll extend the length of the game by making people literally have to figure everything out. And it's fun. I like that kind of thing. I don't like it when it's too straightforward. But And it's not Simon's Quest level of ridiculousness of, like we've said before, go here and kneel down with a red ruby in your hand for five minutes and you might get whisked away to another level. Levels of ridiculousness. 
But yeah, to know to burn that tree. And then there's a lot of hidden caves where you can bomb walls out, which became a staple of Zelda, to bomb through walls. But usually they're like recognisable, aren't they, on the later Zelda games. There'll be a crack in the wall, and that indicates that you can bomb it and go through it, whereas this there isn't. It's just walk around dropping bombs next to walls until a, a hole appears in it. And some of them have rupees in, some of them have hidden. I don't think there's anything that you actually need behind a bombable wall. I could be wrong. But some of them, as I said, made with devilment in mind, some of them you blow them open and you go in and the guy's there, he's like, you've just broke my door, you owe me 50 rupees, and then it costs you 50 rupees. And it's like, (laughs) that's just like malicious programming at that point to do that when you're going around and trying to claw together as many rupees as you can to buy a shield or something and then exploring for more actually ends up costing you in the long run. So, yeah, it's one of those, and it's got some fun bits in it as well, hasn't it? So, like, if you attack the bloke who gives you the sword, you get attacked with fireballs and things like that. That were It was those little quirks that were just coming into video gaming at the time, I think. Before that, everything had been pretty much what you see is what you get. And then with Zelda, it circumvents a lot of that, and you get these moments which carry on into the others, for example, attacking the chickens, and and then you get absolutely hammered with chickens in pretty much any Zelda game now. So yeah, it's that kind of mischievousness that that you could see was like blossoming within the team that made Zelda, and it's just carried on and carried on through the games. Yeah, it is uh, to say it's the first Zelda that they've set their stall out quite well because there are some entries in the series that go really quite serious. Uh, Twilight Princess, prime example that that is bleak and it's the very traditional of the time grey brown not really much life to it really but then you do get the odd side quest that is just bizarre that you just think well thanks for that Nintendo thank you for subversing my expectations because that's just odd in the middle of this really bleak quest to save Hyrule um, there's a man that's turned into gold because of all the money he's hoarded and you've got to go around <laughs> collecting and donating more money to him to stop him being made of gold. It's just weird. <laughs> I mean, turning into a dog's a bit strange as well. So they'd already got yeah a level of that covered. But yeah, it, I know what you mean. It is a. It's never been my favourite Twilight Princess. It's just a bit too gritty, I suppose, and and there's not much joy in it. Like Zelda for me is all about the joy of opening new chests and finding things and helping villagers out in the 3D ones and well even in the 2D ones you get a level of that as well you can do little mini quests for for like the people who live in the villages and yeah twilight princess is just this terrible things happen now this terrible things happen now everything's really gloomy and i don't know how they got the crossbow training thing out of that because the crossbow training thing is really fun and lighthearted it's like the two sides of the game. Like Twilight Princess has just got all the misery and dull drabness. And then Crossbow Training's got all the fun bits that we could have had in the game, but we never actually got. So yeah, Zelda 1 is is a bit more on the, the frivolous fun side of it, isn't it? And even more so, I think, in Japan on the Famicom, because they had the enemies where you had to shout in the microphone to kill them, didn't they? And that kind of thing, which which is a really fun way of using a a bit of tech that never translated over into America because you didn't have a microphone in your controller. So they just made them normal enemies in in the American and European versions. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I do like the first one now. Now I've adjusted to the graphics and the gameplay and everything. And I think, like we said, it's, it's an open world game when open world games didn't exist. 
it's not linear in the slightest, is it really? No, you can you can literally as long as you are relatively skilled at the game and don't mind having a bit of twitch reflexes when it comes to the boss battles, you can do any dungeon you like in any order and and then from there they've gone sort of taken a step back and it the series just went linear for a while and then we seem to have come back round to this homage really from Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom to that open world origin for for Zelda. And I mean, I don't know whether it was because I'm assuming it was in the little paper guide that you got with the game, but it does just drop you in it. It just goes, there's no descriptor, there's no conversation, there's no context. It's just, here's your sword, smack on the bum, off you pop. And that's it, and you just stood in the middle of this field just going, brilliant. Um, well, it's not now? even that, is it? You don't even get a sword. You have to go and get that off that <laughs> bloke. So you literally, literally drops you in completely unarmed on a crossroads, I think. So if yeah. you don't go towards where the man with the sword is, you're not going to have a good time for the first few minutes of playing it until you figure out, I need to go and find a sword. So yeah, they really do chuck you in the deep end with it and, and just basically here figure it out and there's nothing to explain that if you're at full hearts you can fire your sword beam rather than just swing in there's nothing to really explain what you're doing where you're going what all the little add-ons you pick up before so like some of them are obvious like the raft but then there's lanterns and things isn't there and you don't really first time playing it what's this for and then you realize that there's probably a dungeon somewhere that if you'd have gone in before you got it it was pitch black and you needed the lantern and then certain enemies are more susceptible to fire aren't they the like the mummies and stuff you can burn them which is a lot quicker than slashing them with the sword so there's a lot to it to say it was 1986 and it was a very early game there's a lot of nuance to it it's not just slash your way through a dungeon beat a repetitive boss move on to the next one it is, oh, well, some things work better against some enemies and a lot of the enemies and the bosses have weak points that make it a lot easier if you figure them out. And there's a lot of that level of intricacy to it that you weren't getting in games previous to that. Yeah, and a lot of the boss design as well is, because obviously it does, it, it it's the origin uh, for everything uh, Zelda. So it that you obviously need the item that you get in the dungeon to defeat the boss. But some of the boss designs are a bit out there as well. They're not just standard walk up, stab man with stick. Um, they're quite. I, th- I think it's the origin of like the Helmosaur King, where you it's got a mask, and it's a giant lizard with a mask, and you have to bomb the mask off its face yeah. so you can then do damage to it. I mean that that sort of programming and that sort of boss design is amazing, considering it's Jesus. It's like. Over 30 years ago. That's so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not dwell on that. (laughs) But yeah, it is a lot of fun and it is... You can see where the new Zelda games get their inspiration from. Like The the enemies that are in Zelda 1 are still in Tears of the Kingdom. Like Otteroks and things that, that pop up. They don't look the same anymore, but they're the same core enemy that do the same thing. I think... um, could be wrong, but I think in Zelda 1, there's those ones that can steal stuff off you if they eat you. Like likes. Yeah. And they show up in Ocarina and Majora's. Don't know if they're in Breath of the Wild and... They're in Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> they're definitely in Tears of the Kingdom. So yeah, the the consistency of what they've done 
especially when you consider Zelda 2, which I'm sure we'll come to in a second, the fact that you play Zelda 1 and you play Tears of the Kingdom and you can recognise some of the enemies and Link is pretty much the same character and you've got, I don't know if Ganon's in the new one, but I assume he is because it's always Ganon. So it's the same boss you fought in the first one, like God knows how many later, and they've still managed to keep it quite fresh and interesting. And that all came from this game, and it's yeah, it is a classic. It's it's not difficult to play now, even though the graphics are obviously really dated. Once you get the hang of the controls and the sort of nuance of how far back you have to be to slash something without taking a hit and that kind of thing. It's very playable, even to this day. Yeah, I d- and I don't think they've ever remastered it, have they? Um, th- uh, not not with new graphics and stuff. Not with new graphics. I mean, they they upgraded like the resolution and stuff. I mean, as best mm. you can with something from nineteen eighty six. Um, and then they did like the um, they did a series of game and watch consoles, little tiny handheld game and watch consoles mm. that had that game and that game alone built into it. And the pixel resolution and stuff like that and the frames per second and stuff like that were upscaled slightly. But yeah, with it being sort of an isometric hack and slash RPG, there's not a lot you can do with it. But yeah, I'm surprised they've never remade it and retooled it from the ground up. The way that they remade Link's Awakening, they could do that for Zelda 1 and it would be a great game. Like it is anyway, but to put those level of graphics in and maybe put some more dialogue in and and make it a little bit more like the newer games, I think that'd sell massively well if they did that. And to to come to Link's Awakening, there is quite a lot of similarity between Link's Awakening and Zelda One because Link's Awakening is so obtuse when it comes to puzzle <laughs> solutions, where you're going next. Um, I mean, there's some nice bits where they throw in other characters from around Nintendo's cutting room floor. There's a chain chomp and stuff like that that appear in it. But yeah, I'd say that Link's Awakening is very heavily influenced by the designs in Zelda 1. And yeah, I'd kind of like, I adore the remake of Link's Awakening. And for them to do a Zelda 1 in that style, I think would, would suit it perfectly. Yeah. Um and it'd be a nice way to just refresh it. I mean, Jesus Christ, they they companies remake the same old tap god knows how many times and just slightly judge it up a little bit. It can't be that difficult to remake Zelda One. It can't be. And it's it's not a short game, is it? Like it's not like, oh, we're not gonna remake it because it's games of nineteen eighty six were if you got like half an hour out of most of them, you'd done well, and then you just play it again. So like, I'm thinking back to when I had my Commodore 64. Most of those games, you got 10, 15 minutes out of a game, and then you either died or you won. And if you won, you probably turned it off and put something else on. And if you died, you started from the beginning and tried again. Whereas this is a fully fleshed out, like if, I'd say a good few hours if you were rushing to do this game. So if they did remake it and they put a bit of dialogue in and they maybe put a few more barriers into to getting into different dungeons, maybe even tacked a couple more dungeons on or a bit more in the overworld because they couldn't do much with the overworld back then. It was mostly dungeon, wasn't it? If they could put a few houses in and a bit of dialogue and a couple of fetch quests to get extra items and that kind of thing and just pad it out a little bit, I think it'd be Link's Awakening levels of value for money if they did do that. 
I just think it's 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 really weird that they've never tried to make this game again, but with better graphics and better sprites and and just pad it out a bit. And I don't know why. Whether there's some sort of preciousness at Nintendo that we can't touch that because it is an absolute classic. Because I mean, you could argue they've never really remade. Well, they have remade Mario One, haven't they? They've they've remade Mario Brothers like quite a few times with better graphics. Yeah. So why not Zelda? It's it's waiting to be done. It's waiting to have it happen. They've remade Metroid. Yeah. So I don't know. There must be something going on where they feel like they can't touch it. But yeah, I think it, it's a good one if you've if you've got either the patience to try and figure it out without looking at a guide, or you've got a guide that tells you that helps you through the more cryptic bits. Even now, I think you can have a lot of fun with with the Legend of Zelda, and I I don't know what the plan was for the franchise initially, but if you look at Zelda two compared to Zelda one, it feels like the the plan was like with the Halloween films where they were planning on doing it a different film every time. So the first Halloween film is Michael Myers, the second one is Michael Myers because the first one had more to tell. But then the third one, Season of the Witch, which is nothing to do with Michael Myers, and everyone hated it, so then they brought him back. But the original plan for those films was every film was... It was like an anthology collection. They were called Halloween, but everything was different. And I feel like with Zelda, that's what they were going for, because Zelda 1, you've got this top-down hack-and-slash game. And then Zelda 2 is a side-scroller with like RPG elements and full-on platforming and all that kind of thing. And it's just, they're not the same game at all, are they? And I think a lot of people were really disappointed with Zelda 2 because it wasn't more of Zelda 1. Yeah, um, but it is interesting what they they did after that because I know there was quite a lot of negativity around Zelda 2, but they still utilised that side-scrolling aspect in all of the 2D Zeldas after Zelda 2. So when you go, say, for example, if you're going down into a sub-basement in a dungeon in, say, for example, Link's Awa- uh, Link to the Past or Link's Awakening, it turns into a side-scroller and you have to do precision platforming. So it it's almost like Nintendo were determined to make it a thing and they were married to the idea of at least having a 2D aspect to it, uh, side-scrolling. So they've just sort of shoehorned it in, just in the hopes that people still love it. I do wonder, though, if Zelda 2 would have gone over okay, whether instead of A Link to the Past, whatever Zelda 3 was would have again been something completely yeah. out of the blue that was that was different to the first two again. I think they panicked when it wasn't well-received and just went back to the formula of the first one, like you say, with just a little bit of the second one in there to say that they had. But Zelda 2 gets or got slated, but actually it's not a bad game. It's completely different to Zelda 1. If you go in expecting more of Zelda 1, you will be disappointed. And it is incredibly hard in certain areas, like um, the volcano, when you're inside the volcano. That level is horrifically hard. But it's one of those where it's you build up progression, don't you? So you level up the more you play it, even if you die. You keep levelling up, and, and the stronger you get, the more resilient you are, and the more damage you do. So it's that RPG element to it. So yeah, if you're persistent enough, even the most difficult bits become not too difficult, because you end up really overpowered, and you can just slash your way through it. But yeah, not the worst game. I think it's got a lot going for it. It is just there are bits where it's like the difficulty curve is ridiculous, and I can see why that put people off. Yeah, I think I think their intention for the series was that it was going to be an RPG. And to be a little bit harsh to Zelda, it is a very light 
RPG. There are RPG elements, but there's no level progression. Your overall strength remains the same, broadly speaking. Your physical strength, anyway. It just depends what weapon you're wielding um, as you progress. So you get you start off with your little standard sword. You then move on to the master sword, which is stronger. In some games, you get like the big Goron sword, which is stronger still. But unless you're and your hearts are determined by the amount of heart containers you collect by collecting heart pieces and beating bosses, etc. So yeah, it is really light on the RPG elements, and I think their intent with The Adventure of Link Zelda 2 was to push that RPG envelope and see how people reacted to it, and they all just sort of went, nah, I don't like it, and they just went, oh, crap, right, okay. Back to RPG light <laughs> it is then. And I mean, we'd it'd, we'd be remiss not to mention while we're talking about Zelda games that didn't get a good reception, if we didn't talk about the 3DO ones. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, no, the Philips CDI ones, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they deserve a mention because they are just it's the it's the hardware, isn't it? They, they're not the hardware for a CDI a, a Philips CDI was difficult to work with. And then whoever programmed them also probably didn't do as well as they could have done in some of the weird decisions, like the fact you have to stab things to collect them rather than just walking over them. And the fact that the button to use a lantern and go through a door is the same button. And sometimes you'll walk into a dark room, standing in front of the door and press to light the lantern and just go straight back through the door again. So there's there's weird design choices like that. But I think overall, the problem with them was they were on a system that just couldn't cope with that kind of game. It was designed for really simple puzzle games or basically games where it was a, an FMV and you just made a couple of decisions. Yeah. And, yeah, an action platformer doesn't work in that environment. And and I, I know we've, we've ragged on some graphics of the games that we've been reviewing, <laughs> but the graphics for these are awful. You can't even say they're of their time. They were of their time if it had been pushed through a microwave. The the levels don't look too bad. It's those cutscenes that pop up that look like they've been drawn by a toddler that are all really weirdly voiced. <laughs> like you, you must know what we're talking about if you're listening to this, but if you don't, just go and Google like cutscenes from oh god, what are the games actually called? Wand of Gamelon, that's one of them, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. Just, just go and Google cutscenes from Wand of Gamelon, and you'll see what we mean because it is something else. You've killed me. Good. And I don't mind watching people play those games because somebody that I follow on YouTube. Um, Pro Jared played through one of them. It's like a remake, so somebody's made it a bit better than it was, so you don't have to stab things to collect them, and some of the controls have changed, and they've made it a lot more playable. And it's quite a fun game to watch, to play through. Like They, they did have ambition with it, you can tell. Even with all three of them, they had ambition. It's just they didn't have either the skills or the software to, to fulfil the ambition that they had. And it's a bit sad, really, because if those games had been made for a competent console, I think they'd have been really good. And and it's particularly weird that when you consider when those games were made, they'd made a Legend of Zelda TV series in 1989 that was a cartoon, and the, the art design was a lot better. <laughs> but they could have just got the guy that did that to do the design for this. And they just went, nah, nah, we'll get... We'll get Jim's kids to uh, do the <laughs> do the cutscenes for us. 
Because Link is basically a moron, isn't he, in those games? Like <laughs> yep. in one of in one of them, he's trying to save Zelda, but he rushes out and forgets all his gear. So then you have to go around collecting all his gear so he can be at least halfway useful to finding her. And then in the other one, she's rescuing him, isn't she? So, <laughs> yep. Like I, I think in two of them, she's rescuing him because there's three, and I'm sure you play as Zelda in two of the three. So yeah, Link is almost like a joke on on the Philips CDI, and those games themselves are a joke. But yeah, it's disappointing that they came out for that console because if they'd have done them for a, a SNES, or even if they'd have saved them and done them for like the the GameCube, they'd have been good games. But just where they landed just was ill fated, and they've ended up being a bit of a joke now, which is a shame because it's it's still Zelda and it's still the idea behind it, the story in it isn't bad. It's just the execution is just awful. Unless you're looking for comedy, and then they're, <laughs> yeah. they're perfect. They're perfect to play through in that instance. But yeah, we we I thought they deserved a mention just <laughs> just while we're discussing games that didn't go over particularly well. But although in though in in their case, it was deserved that they didn't go over very well. Yeah. But again, segue nicely into games that didn't go over particularly well when they came out. The second game we're looking at today, Wind Waker, was hammered, wasn't it, when it came out? I remember people just going off on it. And at the time, I probably could understand it because you're coming off Ocarina and Majora, which look a very specific way, play a very specific way. Everyone loved them. And then you get what is essentially a cartoon for the next game. And everyone's like, what is this? Like, why have they put no effort into it? And and I think that was the thought at first. Like, they've done this absolutely beautiful game in Majora, and now they've gone and just drawn some rubbish little cartoon where they've put no effort in. And obviously that's not true, but that's your first impression when you see the style change. And I don't think people were used to a style change in 3D, were they? Because all the 3D games we'd had to that point were Ocarina Majora, style graphics and no one could predict then that they were going to do these little phases where every so often they completely change the style up and and everything yeah i nintendo really didn't help themselves with this either because in e3 in the previous year that the the one they announced wind waker in they did a zelda demo and it was a um hardware uh, software test of a new system and it was Link versus Ganondorf and it was a proper sword fight between the two. So it was very Ocarina style adult Link and Ganondorf from the end of Ocarina of Time in a full-fledged 3D sword fight in, for the time, stunningly rendered 3D and it was realistic in inverted commas because the graphics weren't up to par at the time. But everyone went berserk for it. And then the following year, Nintendo went, and we'd like to announce Zelda Wind Waker. And everyone went, way. And then they showed it on the screen, and everyone just sort of went, oh. Uh, <laughs> quick question, Nintendo. Are you taking the piss? <laughs> I didn't get it straight away, because I didn't have a GameCube. Uh, this is becoming a running theme for me on these games. But, I mean, you went with me to buy my GameCube, so we can gauge when that was, and it was definitely after Wind Waker. And I think I borrowed Wind Waker off someone. I don't think I even ever bought it initially. 
uh, and I borrowed it and I played it for about two or three hours and I was like, meh, it's all right. I'm not as endeared to it as I was with Majora and, and Ocarina. Didn't give it a massive chance because I had a lot of other games to play at the time because I borrowed it the week I got the console. So I got all the games I got with the console. Eternal Darkness, Mario Sunshine, that Zelda disc for for the old games. So Wind Waker took a serious backseat and also because I knew I had to give it back eventually. I didn't really get that invested in it. I think I probably did buy a GameCube copy later. But again, never really got that much into it until I got a Wii U and I got really cheaply i got the um the like zelda wii u with all the gold scrolling on it and everything and i got it for the the console more than the game but it came with a digital copy of wind waker so i installed it and that's when i got into it and i've still never finished it but i definitely did a lot more of it on wii u which is mental really because it's harder to play on wii u if anything when you've got that massive cumbersome tablet and you're trying to to use that to play it but yeah that's when i started really playing it and and sort of realize what i've missed out on the first time yeah it is it it takes uh it carries the torch from when ocarina and majora left off really in terms of dungeon design and world building and stuff like that it is very cleverly done and the artwork's stunning it's cel-shaded art and it is as beautiful today as it was back then. I mean, God help the bloody poor sod at Nintendo that was given the HD remaster job on that. Because they must have just got it, <laughs> turned it on and gone, well, it looks fine. What are we going to do? <laughs> and some bloke just comes in and goes, just increase the bloom on the sun just so it looks <laughs> like your lenses need cleaning and that will call it a day. Because they don't, they haven't done anything with it graphically. They've changed some gameplay uh, features in it, simplified and streamlined some side quests. But other than that, it just looks the same as it did on the GameCube and the GameCube version was stunning. Did they make it widescreen or was it already, already widescreen? They'll have probably made it widescreen and they'll have probably upped the frame rate. Uh, but the... GameCube probably ran at lower pixel resolution, so they probably upped that a little bit. But overall, if you put them side by side, and it was a st- and it was a still image from each one, you'd have you'd have just sat there and gone, okay, which one's the GameCube one, and which one is the Wii U <laughs> one? Because I can't tell. I think it was, it was the right type of open world. So your your progression is still pretty linear. As in, you can't just go off and fight the final boss after 10 minutes if you want. You have to go island to island and, and place to place in a, in an order. But if you are of the persuasion that you just want to sail off and look for new islands to explore, you've got that open world element of it. And I mean, I must have spent hours just trying to fill my map in, sailing up and down in lines and, and encountering pirates and taking them out and finding islands and seeing if there's anything worth having on them. Uh, and I think it's got that level of, there's the option of, I don't want to do any of the main quests, I just want to go and piss about for half an hour. And that's what I'm going to do. Similar to like, a obviously not, not as violent as, but similar to like GTA, where you might just fire it up one day with no intention of doing a main quest. You might just run around battering people or running people over or just drive in or you've got the option to and that is what I got out of Wind Waker that I could just jump in my boat sail off 
just go on a bit of a discovery, find some treasure maps, go and see what's in the treasure chests and not do any mainline missions for a few hours if I didn't want to. And then eventually be like, right, I should probably go and do the next dungeon or figure out who I need to talk to next or do a little side quest for someone. And yeah, I think that's the right way to do open world for Zelda. I think when you get to like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, it's just too open world. And like we said in the last episode, it limits your ability to tell a story when you don't know where the player's going to go first. So you have to keep things really vague and generic because if you're telling them in order, so if you're saying Dungeon 1, 2, 3, and 4, they finish Dungeon 1, you can do a big old exposition about what number 2 is going to be or what they've just encountered in 1. Whereas if you've got them all open and you go to 3, and then they start telling you about what was in Dungeon 1, it sort of breaks the game. So they have to keep it fuzzy and generic because they don't know if someone's been here first or here first. And I don't like that in a Zelda game. I'd much rather, like you said last week, crafted experience of we're guiding you where you need to go, but if you want to go over there and have a bit of fun playing a rupee game or an archery game or ride off into the desert and explore, you can do, but you're not doing anything main story related over there until you're ready to and i think that is what wind waker does really well it gives you the options but it doesn't break the story with it yeah and i'd i'd say that the the art style is very supportive of the story in terms of that it's quite light it's very i, I want to use the word whimsical that's the word that i was just thinking of in terms of an overall overall feel that you get from it even just looking at the graphics you go oh that's quite nice that's a nice bit of whimsy there for you yeah. but the storyline and some of the characters that are introduced i mean i think if you complete the game and you start on new game plus you get to do the entire game in a pair of lobster pattern gym jams <laughs> which no other zelda game would let you do I can't see you being given lobster pattern gym jams to finish Majora's Mask or Twilight Princess. It would just clash with the overall theming. So it's really... It, I mean, the story's not exactly challenging in terms of levels of you know, complexity. It's your sister gets kidnapped by a giant bird. You go, as her slightly older brother, go chasing after her, abandoning your poor old grandma on the island, <laughs> and you come back to her after like five or six dungeons, and she's fallen into sort of a coma um, because you've <laughs> left her, and she's devastated that you're both gone. And it's like, Jesus Christ, thanks, Nintendo, you monster. Um, but yeah, then, the, then you get like the sort of pirate aspect of it as well, where you meet Tetra and the her group of pirates, and they're all useless. They're not proper pirates, really. They're like the pirate rejects that no one else wanted as part of the crew, so they formed their own crew. And again, they're all they're all sort of like quirky characters and a little bit batty. And my favourite bit in the entire game is when you're trying to break into what turns out to be Ganon's fortress. And they essentially put you in a cannon, which is like a, a, a trebuchet catapult thing, in a barrel and just launch you at the wall. And it does this, the dramatic, done, done. And it, the camera's getting closer and closer on Link's face as it escalates. And it just catapults him. And he doesn't land in any sort of graceful fashion. He literally smacks into the side of the fortress and slowly slides down and falls off onto the floor. So there is the level of comedy there as well. But yeah, it's, uh, it is it is a genuinely, it's a warm game as well. It, it's like, 
not just in terms of the heat it gives off from the GameCube because it's rushing the uh, processor <laughs> to death, but it is just a nice, fuzzy, warm game that you can enjoy. Yeah, it's colourful, isn't it? I think that's... Even in the dungeons, it's colourful. Like, you go into the first... The first one, again, is a volcano, I think, with the... Is it with the dragon sat on top of it? Yeah. And, like, he's meant to be the first boss, but he's, like, quite nice and, like, friendly looking even as a boss. There's, like, I think the best way to consider it is, like, mild peril if they were going to write it on the box because there's nothing in it that is particularly threatening. Like, even the biggest bosses aren't overly threatening for the majority of the game. And it's just, yeah, there's a lot of colour in it. There's a lot of vibrancy. There's a lot of fun. Like you say, the comedy levels to it. It doesn't take anything seriously, which coming off Majora's Mask and Ocarina, they did. Not not to the level of Twilight Princess, but there was there's this impending doom in Majora's Mask the whole way through it, and people like you said in the that episode, the the stages of grief and, and stuff are represented, and that's quite a heavy thing to put into a kid's game. Whereas Wind Waker is just this is fun, this is colourful, there's funny pirates. They're a bit dopey. There's like cartoon little rats in the ships that you can beat up, and and it's just a good laugh. Like there's nothing particularly scary in it. Like there's certainly nothing like the the dead hands and and oh, those yeah. zombies in Twilight Princess and uh, not Twilight in Ocarina and things like that. You don't get that level of like grimness in it. Like the most you'll get is like somebody moaning because you've smashed all the vases up when you go into a house or something like that. So it is a fun, not childish. But if you let a child play it, there's not going to be anything in it that upsets them. I think I think the best thing you could compare it to is those old Errol Flynn era um, Robin Hood sort of thing. The swashbuckling, swinging onto the deck of a pirate ship sort of thing. Um, nothing, like you say, nothing too serious and just a little bit gung-ho sort of feel to it. I mean, you could say it was childish, but it would be more along the lines of how a kid would imagine, a young kid would imagine a game. Yeah. So if they were playing a game, they were playing make-believe, Wind Waker is what they would imagine if they could draw out their imagination. That is how it would come across. You meet these quirky little characters. You're never in any serious threat, even though, you know, you can say that the threat is there. But like you say, mild peril. The only sort of thing I'd say that sort of takes away from the childishness of it is Ganondorf in it. Because he's he's not the sneering king of evil that he was in Ocarina of Time. Because this is a direct, se- an indirect sequel to Ocarina, because it's hundreds of years after Ocarina, but it's the same Ganondorf essentially, and he's almost become philosophical as he's aged, as he's been trapped in Hyrule. He's very, he doesn't engage you in one-on-one combat at all initially, and it's only when you completely and utterly foil his plan at the end does he finally sort of let the mask drop and just goes back to being old-style Ganondorf and he engages you in a proper sword fight rather than using magic, as he has done in every other uh, game. So it's that's the only bit of the game that's sort of not as childlike as the rest of it. There is that sort of serious undertone with the character of Ganondorf. Yeah, but he's he's not present in a lot of it, is he? Like, you know he's there, but he's not. In Ocarina, you know that he's taken Zelda. And the whole point of it is that you're going to rescue her and you know you're going to have this showdown with him. 
Whereas in Wind Waker, it's more you're rescuing your sister because a bird's took her and you don't really know what that links into, pardon the pun. So yeah, he's not, he is this sort of brooding force, but he's not really on your mind when you're playing a lot of it. You're just exploring and having fun and like you say, meeting these quirky people. And because it's child link, but it's almost even more child link than what's in Majora. Like he's... He feels like he's even younger than that and like more innocent than that. And you get that reaction off the other people, don't you? When you talk to them, they treat you as if you're like a useless little child a lot of the time when you talk to the adults. So, yeah, you do. It does play into that, like you said, of how a kid would imagine playing make believe as pirates and stuff, because that's the reaction you'd probably they expect to get at that age. Yeah, he's he's also a lot more expressive in this than he is in any other Zelda um, cause Link is quite a blank slate, a blank every man in every other Zelda. I'm assuming they do that so that you can sort of project yourself onto him as a character. So they make him sort of this empty vessel and he can be whatever you want him to be. He can be the hero. He can be, you know, just a random guy who's out of place in the world sort of thing. Whereas Toon Link, as he's been coined in every other bit of media that has him in it. So Smash Brothers and stuff like that, they refer to him as Toon Link. Um, but yeah, Kid Link is probably the best way to describe him, really. He is so expressive with his face. He cringes all the time. Um, he's got a, a perpetual frown on his face or a scowl when he's in boss fights. Um, he's got this little sort of cute hunched forward shuffle when he when you Z, uh, Z target um, a boss. He sort of hunches forward a little bit like he's about to box but he's got a shield and a sword in one hand and the f- the fighting style for him is very kid with a stick, just runs in and swings it wildly and hopes that he connects. Um, but yeah, he's he- adorable would be the best way of putting it, really. Because I think there's a, a thing in it where you can take selfies, isn't there? And you yeah. can change his expressions so you can get a really good background and like put the selfie cam on. And then, like, change how his expressions are. And there's loads to pick from, isn't there? Even when you're just doing those. So, yeah, he is. He, they've done a great job of making a silent character very emotive, in that you know exactly what he's thinking at any time you see his face. Uh, and very similar with the other characters in it, they all have quite a range of expression when you talk into them in town. And I think that art style lends itself to putting that level of expression on someone's face especially because when you're looking at the graphics of Ocarina and Majora, their faces are basically frozen with the mouth going because they couldn't. The, the, the ability of the console wouldn't allow for eyes that popped open and closed and wrinkles on the forehead and all that kind of thing. So you've got this very jagged face with usually quite a sharp nose and like quite flat eyes painted on with the mouth going, and that's about it. Whereas once you got to a GameCube, you could do all these different things, like stick the frown lines on and the little beads of sweat coming off them when they're worrying and that kind of thing. And yeah, I think it's great. The the two people that stick out for me in it are um, Beedle, which we, we mentioned before we started recording, who has become a mainstay since that game. So he's the one who floats around on a boat and you can trade trade with him to get certain items that I think only he sells. And then some items are just ones that you stockpile, and if you can't be bothered to go and gather them, you can buy them from him, can't you? Is he a hippie? Would you say he was a hippie? He's definitely got that vibe yeah. to him. 
Yeah, he's a very laid-back kind of guy, and he's just a travelling merchant, really, and they've all... All the characters have sort of got, like, a stock sound effect, and his is a hey. So it's... Like, <laughs> uh, th- there's the weird fish that c- pops up out of the water to write your map out for you, and he just whines at you. But all the characters you interact with have, if they're NPCs, um, have, like, a stock half-human sound effect to s- indicate that they're talking to you, and his is a hey... Uh, so it's quite a laid-back, cool, casual kind of thing. So, yeah, I'd say probably hippie travelling salesman. I remember him, and I remember the one where you can play that game that's basically battleships. Uh, yes. But it's, it's really hard to win. Like, and, and you get something, you get a heart piece or something for winning it. So it's quite useful to win, but it is really difficult. And I think when people speedrun for 100%, that is the bit that make or like makes or breaks a speed run because you can win it in one go, or you could play twenty games and still never beat him. It is so random, uh, but he always sticks in my mind because he's he doesn't look a million miles away from Beadle, does he? But he's like more of a a weathered sailor, I would suppose. So a bit miserable, a bit surly, but he play, randomly just plays this game with you for like ten rupees. Then if you can win, you get something decent. Yeah, and this this was the Zelda as well that sort of moved away from the standard suite of enemies and sub uh, groups of people. So there's no Gorons. I'm sorry, there are Gorons, but there's only one or two because obviously the land of Hyrule has flooded and obviously I'm assuming most of the Gorons drowned. Uh, but there's no Zoras. <laughs> Which Weirdly enough, with sense. it being that much water, but instead you get the Rito, which are bird people who are supposed to have evolved from the Zoras, which is just bizarre because more water, surely they'd have been fine. But <laughs> yeah. hey, anyway, and then you get the Koroks. So people who have rendered their clothes and <laughs> wept openly from Breath of the Wild with 999 Korok seeds can thank Wind Waker for introducing them to the franchise. Of course, yeah, I never put that together. They're in one of the first areas you go in as well, I think, aren't they? Yep. Yeah, I never put two and two together that they were the same thing, which doesn't yep. absolutely make sense. But yeah, it just I knew they were there and I knew they looked similar, but I never, like, what, what was wrong with the Dekus? That would be my question. But yeah, it's it's not a bad game. I can see why people were turned off by it initially because it was so different. But when you sit and play it, there's a lot of fun to be had, an awful lot of fun to be had in it. And I I wouldn't ever put it as one of my favourites, but it's more than playable and it it is an enjoyable one. But just the fact I haven't finished it makes me question how much I rate it compared to Ocarina and Majora, which I think I've only ever finished Ocarina a handful of times, but Majora I've finished loads. And then Link to the Past I'd finished, I think, a few times, and uh, A Link Between Worlds, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we do Link to the Past because it's pretty much a sequel, isn't it? I completed that one in about three days and ended up selling it for more than I paid for it because nobody could get hold of a copy of it. And I was like, I really want to keep it, but I've finished it. What's the point? Like, I've nothing left to do on it. I may as well cash in. So I just got rid of that straight away. But yeah, there have been a couple of games that have not spun off from Wind Waker, but came in that same era for the Game Boy, uh, for the DS, wasn't it? 
don't think they were on the 3DS, just the DS. No, it's just normal, so had, three, uh, normal DS, yeah. So you had Phantom Hourglass, the first one, and then Spirit Tracks, the second one. I never got on with either of them. So I had both of them. Um, Phantom Hourglass is okay, but I just don't like the the timing in the temples mechanic. I'd rather explore things on my own terms and at my own pace rather than you've got three minutes and if you don't finish this temple in three minutes, you get booted back out and you have to start again and figure out how to do it quicker. That just didn't sit well with me and that's what put me off playing that one more than more than a couple of hours. And then Spirit Tracks, I just didn't get into whatsoever. Not at all. Um I liked Phantom Hourglass, but like you say, the dungeon, the whole dungeon exploring in a time limit is. I don't like timed things really in video games. It, it I'm already an anxious person by default. I don't need you adding to it, <laughs> thanks Nintendo. I'm I'm good for anxiety over here, thank you. Um, and yeah, I I don't know. I can never remember whether Spirit Tracks is a direct sequel to Phantom Hourglass. I think it is. I feel but like it's it just is. so far and away different to both Wind Waker and Phantom Hourglass that it just it left me really cold. And I've played some mm. bad Zelda games, and I've played some really downright weird Zelda games: Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons, Minish Cap, which we'll probably come on to in a minute. They're all a bit weird and a bit quirky, but Spirit Tracks I just couldn't get on with. I think it was probably the not great 3D graphics that were available on a DS that it couldn't do them well. It wasn't designed for that level of 3D and they sort of shoehorned it in and it just, you could see when something was turning in your field of vision, the polygons warped. <laughs> yeah. And I know it's a, I know it's a crappy thing to pull a game for, but if you're going to do, if you're going to insist that something's 3D, make sure the console you're putting it on can do 3D. Otherwise, just don't bother do it as 2D. Yeah, if they'd have done it on 3DS, probably would have worked really well. Yeah. But it just came a little bit early, didn't it, for when it, it was what it was pitched as. But the only thing I remember about Phantom Hourglass, apart from not liking the dungeons, is there was one thing in it that was really clever. So I think you got, like, a map, and you had to copy the map somehow. And the, the way to do it, which took me ages to figure out, was to close your DS and then open it again. And it prints the top screen onto the bottom screen. And I was like, that is genius. Like, to think of that and then to be able to implement it so it knows you've closed and then reopened your DS is just something else. And I was like, oh, maybe this there is hope for this game. But I just I don't like things that limit exploration in a game that's about exploration. And that's exactly what the hourglass does. You can't enjoy yourself and figure out what's inside a dungeon because you just have to bomb to the end. And like, I found myself not even fighting enemies. I'm like, what's the point? I just run around them, and because I've got to get somewhere quickly. And yeah, it just it wasn't one for me that one. I played it quite a lot because I had it for my DS, but it just like you said, it it was too far removed from what. Wind Waker was, and then Spirit Tracks was another leap that you had to take. And no, they're not in my favourites. Minish Cap, on the other hand, that you just mentioned there, similar Zelda. It's the the more cartoony, younger Link that's in it. So similar to Wind Waker, but just a really fun game and like quite a strong story. So you do you get the Minish Cap from a bird? I seem to recall it was like a weird bird or something that gives it you. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be a wizard that's been transformed <laughs> into a hat 
But right. it, the way it's been transformed into a hat is now that it, it sort of manifests with a pair of eyes and a beak. So it's really <laughs> weird. So your hat is this sort of weird bird thing that you're essentially, now that I think about it, shoving your head inside its ass <laughs> to get it on your head. It's, it's probably best if you don't think about a lot of this stuff, really. Um, but it, but it yeah, has so... the power to shrink you, doesn't it? That's the, yes. that's the big thing in Minish Cap, is that you have the power to at will, I think, at some point. Yeah. I think at first you're just tiny all the time, aren't you? And then you figure out how you can control it, and it lets you... So you'll be going through a area or a dungeon and you'll come to a dead end or what you think is a dead end. But if you shrink, there's a little hole in the fence you can walk through and then you do like a mini dungeon within a dungeon to get through it. And then you grow yourself at the other end again and you can carry on. It's quite a clever mechanic to implement because it does open up loads of possibilities. Even when you think you're stuck, you've got this option of shrink down, even to get past enemies sometimes. Shrink down, they don't even notice you. You can just toddle on past. But I think the the biggest problem with that game, which we have referenced on a previous episode, is the, the gacha machine. So you can get little figures out of a collectible ball machine, and you have to collect shells, I think it is, to to play this machine. So it starts off you pay one shell and you've got a 100% chance of getting a new figure. But then the second time, you've got a 99% chance because you've taken one figure out, so there's a chance you'll get the duplicate. But if you pay two shells, it guarantees that you don't get another duplicate and then you go back to 100%. And this keeps going to the point where you need to pay like hundreds of shells to guarantee that you get a new figure. And shells aren't unlimited in that game. So unless you play it very cleverly... There, it becomes a situation where you could have played this game for 10, 15, 20 hours and you can't finish it because you've run out of shells. So you can't even try and risk like a 99% chance you're going to get a similar one because you've no shells left. So you sort of have to f- do a bit of risk and reward and go, well, if I play it at 95%, there's a good chance I'm going to get something new. But then if you don't, you're in a really, really situation and this has ruined a lot of people's fun in this game because not only is it like there's a chance that you won't be able to finish the game because getting a full collection opens a room with a heart piece and something else in it so if you want to get 100% you need to do it not only is it that but to collect enough shells put that aside as well to literally do the dialogue boxes to talk to the bloke and spin the machine and get a figure out would take you like two or three hours to get a full set. Even if you went in with as many shells as you can and did it all perfectly, it would take you hours. And I think you've got a shell limit as well, like on how many you can carry. So there could be a situation where you open a chest and it's got 100 shells in it and you can't take them and you just lose them. So you have to keep going back and spending them to make sure you've got enough inventory space to get more. And it's just a nightmare. And it's it, when I played it, I just ignored it because I'd read that it was a problem. And I was like, well, I'm just not going to partake in it. And, and I think when I got to 500 shells, I'd sometimes go back and just spin it a few times to lower them down. But I'd never had an intention of getting a full collection because I just knew what a pain it would be. Yeah. The, the thing with that gacha thing, uh, the gacha mechanic is, shells are technically unlimited, but you get them at random in the overworld. So you can hack down a piece of grass and it will randomly spawn one shell. 
and someone worked out if you went through the whole game and you remembered to go back at certain times in order to spend your shells to be able to pick up this chest that's in this dungeon that's got 50 shells in it that you've got no reason to believe would contain the shells. I think they said 18 days of solid farming <laughs> for shells would net you every single one, and that's not playing anything else in the game. That's not doing the dungeons. You would just have to sit there for 18 days... <laughs> working out the best route to sort of grind for shells in the in order to be able to finish your collection. It's just like, no one has got the time or the patience for that. Nobody. At all, Nintendo. Harking back to, I think, what is becoming a catchphrase for this podcast, what happened to the playtesting? Like, yeah. how did that get through playtesting? Did no one at any point go, well, oh, it seems a bit of a grind to get these gachas, like, you might want to put something in to implement to make this a little bit quicker. Even a dialogue skip would shave hours off, like trying to get a full collection. But yeah, how that managed to get through playtesting is is beyond me. But if you get a chance, and, and I think you put it out, didn't you, just before we came on the call, Minish Cap has just gone on to the Game Boy Advance emulator on Switch. So if you've it got has. the Switch, Switch Online Plus or whatever it's called, the high-end package that lets you have Nintendo and... Game Boy Advance and Mega Drive games, as well as SNES and NES. It's on there now, so if you want to go and try Minish Cap and dedicate 18 and days of your life to try and try and collect all, all the gachas, do it and send us a picture if you manage to get the full collection, because I'd love to see it done. To be fair as well, Wind Waker had... It's not an identical mechanic, but they had a mechanic in it where you got a camera. So, as you mentioned earlier with the selfies... And they, it gave you statues based on the photos that you'd taken. So if you took a photo of an enemy in-game, it gave you a... And it had to be a good photo. This was the problem. So if you took a photo <laughs> of a moblin and took it to this bloke, he would give you a statue of a moblin. And you could get a collection of every character and every enemy in the game. And they got like a little piece of flavor text next to them that described who the character was or what moblins were like and stuff like that. And it even had to be done in boss battles. It's just going to say you have to do it for bosses. You have to do it for bosses. And if and he only gives you a statue based on like certain criteria, like you have to be able to see all of the subject's face within it, within the shot. So if you're in the middle of a high-pitched battle with like puppet Ganon at the end and you take a photo of what you assume to be a good enough photo of his face and he's like, that's oh, not really good enough that you don't get the statue of puppet Ganon. And you can't replay it. And you can't replay it. So yes, so they carry <laughs> that's probably where it came from. <laughs> yeah, it's just a trend now. <laughs> Games yeah. will make statues that you might not be able to get all of them, but people will still try. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've talked enough Zelda for now. So I think it's probably time to do the scores. So let me get my pen, which I've lost. Here it is. And let's put some scores down. So let's rate original Zelda first. Tricky one again, because we know where it, it leads. So we know what it leads to. But do we take that into account? I think it's very difficult not to. I, I, I won't say it's influential really because Zelda's done so many different things over the time. If that had been like the the base and every year they'd just done 
a cookie cutter version of with just slightly shinier graphics. You could say that it was massively influential because it's, you know, the entire series has been like it, but no other Zelda's been like it, really. Mm. It's They've taken bits of it and they've adapted it and it's now moved to 3D and what have you. But yeah, so... And no other, I wouldn't like to say, oh yes, it's been influential to every other RPG or every other hack and slash or action adventure game, because I don't think it has, really. I think other games have taken bits as well, like you say. Yeah. There's never been a like direct, direct copy, I wouldn't say, but other bits have took the fact that your sword might shoot a beam out when you're at full health, or the fact that you might need to collect a raft to traverse some water. I think those ideas probably stemmed from this, because there wasn't much before this that was doing that kind of gather an inventory of tools that help you progress. So there's probably that element, but like you say... Even Zelda didn't copy this going forward, so you can't really say someone else did to that extent. I think the one thing you really have to consider when scoring it is how much was in a game from 1986 yeah, and what it was up against in, in 1986. Nothing else came close to this in terms of depth, in terms of mechanics, in terms of the the sheer size of the game and, and how that work these puzzles in. There were probably games that did all these bits in isolation, but I wouldn't have thought in 1986 there were many games that were pulling them all into one, two, three, four, five hour plus game at that point. And I think when you take that into consideration, I think it should score higher than average. I mean, just looking at it, we gave Super Metroid 74. I'm wondering if we give this the same. Yeah, um, I think because... Like you say, games at the time, if you compare it to like other Nintendo offerings around that time, you've got Donkey Kong, which was the same level over and over again, just slightly faster with different things being thrown at you. Whereas this is, it's going to be a push to say it, but it's a crafted world, like a full crafted open world. Granted, you have to you go from side of the screen to side of the screen and then it transitions you over to the next piece. So it's not like a seamless open world. But it's still, when the best thing you've got at the time is a level, and then <laughs> you finish that level, and all it does is, here's the level again, but slightly faster or slightly more difficult. And this is completely crafted in its entirety. Dungeons are crafted. Overworld is crafted. It's not randomly generated. You can't just wonder, oh, start the game up and go, oh, I wonder what it's going to drop me this time in terms of loot or weapons, or if I go off this side of the screen, where will it bring me out? Will this bring me out to Dungeon 12 first? It's, the map is there, and it exists physically, and it, yeah, it, I, you have to give it props for that. And it's got the level of complexity that you just, you weren't seeing at the time, like you say, with Donkey Kong. It's the beams, then it's the like factory level, then it's another one, then it's loop, and you play the same ones again, but faster. This is so far apart from that. It's unbelievable in that how different things are to do, and yeah, I think it really deserves... I mean, probably 74 is a bit low, but I think that's probably where we should pitch it, just because of the age of it, of how it's not as accessible now. So in terms of what the criteria we initially set out was how much fun did we have playing it now? Probably not as much as the others that are above it on the list, but 
it deserves to be fairly high. So I think 74 is probably to tie it with Metroid Prime, uh, Super Metroid, because it's on that level, isn't it, of complexity for its time. So I think that's probably yeah. a good place to pitch it. Now, Wind Waker, again, a difficult one to drop in. Um, just to throw some of the other scores out, see where you would put it. Would you rate it above Shadow of the Colossus at 76? I think I would. Yeah, well, you know I would. Because this is this is so accessible. As long as you like sort of action adventures, sort of RPG like things, it doesn't take a long time to get into it as well. And that's the problem I have with a lot of RPGs. Twilight Princess is a prime example, and that's RPG light. You spend the first two hours herding goats <laughs> as a farmer, and it's just like, what is this? And yeah, you spend hours in RPGs, sort of in your first village, wa- walking around, chatting to the random pillock of the hour. Whereas this, you you wake up on top of a little tower. Your little sister's got you a birthday present because it's your birthday. You toddle down to find that your grandma's giving you these cosplay outfit of the hero of time, <laughs> where she gives you your green uniform, and then your sister gets kidnapped, and it's like bang. You're in, and then you go and you find the pirates, and then you go get go to the fortress, and it's just beat after beat after beat. I, I think it'd be called picaresque narrative because a lot of the set pieces don't necessarily follow on from each other. So if you showed someone, right, this is a part of it, and you're like, right, why are you on a pirate ship? Never mind that. <laughs> yeah. We're moving on now. You've got your own boat. Look, ooh, and then yeah. you're moving on, and you're like. Where am, where am I now? In the middle of a forest. Right, okay, uh, brilliant. Where, where am I now? Volcano, get on with it. So it, it's very disjointed, but it flows so seamlessly. And it's just, it's a nice game to play. It's one of those, what I would define, cosy game. Yeah, so I'd say above Bioshock as well, because it just, yeah. like you say, the accessibility above all puts it above Bioshock because you can just pick up and play and and drop in, drop out, whereas I feel like I need a bit more preparation to play Bioshock. I need to be in the right frame of mind and and have enough time to fully absorb into it, whereas Wind Waker, I could probably just go, I've got half an hour, I'm just going to sail about for a bit and and see what else I can discover. Um, But then the next up from that, we've got Resi 4 at 88. Now, I don't know if I'd go higher than that. Mm. I mean, I'd probably put it... I'm thinking around 84... I I would say that that's fair, because they're both beautifully crafted experiences, but they're crafted for a completely different audience and a completely different intent. And I think both of them deserve the respect of their respective companies did something so ballsy with the expectations of their audience. Both could have been a massive flop. And despite the initial outrage... I think Wind Waker is one of the best-selling Zelda games. Mm. It's up there, definitely. Um, And Resident Evil 4, again, could have been a massive flop, but sold absolute gangbusters. So, yeah, I I think not quite as high as Resi 4, but it definitely deserves that level of respect. I knocked it a few points down just because it took me so long to appreciate it. And I think... I have to take that into account that it didn't win me over immediately, whereas Resi 4 
the day it came out, I was on it. I was obsessed with it, and I played it to completion in the space of like two or three, four days. Whereas Wind Waker took me a good few years for the the Wii U one to really capture me and and draw me in. And as I said, I've still never finished it, so it's not up there for me. I, I will go back to it at some point and finish it off. I mean, I assume it'll be on Switch for free eventually. Hopefully, fingers crossed. They'll do like a little GameCube emulator with the like they're doing with the N64 one, and then I can finish it on there. But yeah, I, I think it definitely deserves well above 80 for for what it's done in the franchise. Yeah, uh, just to give you a bit of context then, so 7.6 million units of Ocarina of Time were sold in in its life's, lifespan. Um, so I'm not taking into account all the 3DS or the port versions of it, although it mm. is still the same game, essentially. Wind Waker initially sold 4.6 million, but then with the HD version, sold a further 3.36 million. So it's outstripped Ocarina in terms of overall sales. Granted, that's two versions, but they haven't done anything with them. They just put it on a different yeah. console. So I think that's got to be massive because Ocarina is often heralded as the best game of all time, which we will discuss later in the list when we're doing it. But I think that is testament to how people's attitudes did change and how Nintendo did ultimately make the right choice. And I think yeah. a lot of games companies could do with taking those kind of risks more, really. And and I don't think it was ever classed as a pack-in, was it? I know you got it with that console, the special Zelda console, but that they were few and far between, I'm pretty sure. And, and people were probably buying it almost as much because it was a Wind Waker version. So I think they're they're legitimate sales. It's not like people were buying a Wii U and it just so happened to come with a Wind Waker copy that they weren't interested in. You had to have interest in Wind Waker to want that Zelda edition of it. And I think you can class those as legitimate. And I don't know if... Did they ever do an Ocarina pack-in for N64? Yeah. Because I know you could get a Mario one, couldn't you? Could you get one? So that, again, that might have been slightly inflated numbers from that because people were just buying whatever version of the console they could get their hands on with a game that they're potentially not that interested in. So yeah, I think those numbers don't lie. And it I think eighty four potentially on the mean side, just, but I think it's probably about where it needs to be. It's it's not influential. It it took what had been done before and it didn't do very much differently in terms of overall gameplay and structuring from Ocarina and Majora. They were very similar dungeon styles and mechanics mm. in there. So if you'd played Majora or Ocarina, if you went into a dungeon, you'd be like, right, okay, I can bomb that. I can use an arrow to blow that bomb up. I probably need to try and jump up there, but how do I get up there? So there was the logic puzzle behind it, and it didn't influence anything going forwards which is a pity, really, because I think it was in an era which was immediately succeeded by a lot of grey-brown and grit. It's strange, isn't it, that it didn't get a sequel? Because you've got Ocarina Majora, one side of it. You've got Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom, the opposite side of it. But then you've just got Wind Waker and Wind Waker HD stuck in the middle. So rather than like making a second, they just remade the first or tidied the first one up and did it again. Depressingly, they did want to do one. They'd got a full sequel mapped out 
However, due to the poor reception it initially received, they went, oh, it's not worth doing, which is heartbreaking, really, which I'm assuming they then split several ideas down and made Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks out of it. Yeah. So if it had done slightly better and it hadn't received such a poor reception from the fans and like we've said in previous things biggest problem of any uh, fan base is the fans so it's your fault zelda fans it's your fault that we didn't get a wind waker too <laughs> so it just remains for me to say thank you to our patrons and we've got a couple of new ones this week so you'll be hearing some unfamiliar names oh, well one might not be as unfamiliar as you think actually looking at the list so in the couple of coins tier, we've now got Mr. Bailey, who's su- subscribed, and seen as Lee's had the rub for about four weeks now, I think it's only fair to give it to him, but from now on it will be will be random. And then in the Bucket Kickers, we've got the Sweaty Llama and our brand new patron, Dino Dini. So thank you to you. Um, I'm pretty certain it's not the Dino Dini after... The, uh, the slating we've given his game over the past few weeks. But I suppose you never know. I mean, bless him, I thought he was going to sue our arse off, let alone <laughs> sponsor us to carry on. Um, hopefully you're enjoying it, and we really appreciate everything we are being donated towards. It, it really does help, because the uh, the bills just come in again. So... <laughs> That's gone, that's gone towards part of that, which is fantastic. So, yeah, if you want to join our Patreon, patreon.com slash bucketlistgamers, you can check out. There's a few different tiers on there. Uh, and, yeah, I think we're just about done. So, other than to say, keep an eye out on Patreon because I think we're going to be recording some Patreon-exclusive content fairly soon to go on there. So you, you'll have something else to sink your teeth into. And the previous Patreon-exclusive content, once I can be bothered to cut all the swearing out of it, will be going on to Spotify uh, fairly soon. So yeah, keep an eye out for that if you are one of those cheapskates that refuse to fund our little venture, which I'm completely joking about, obviously. You can be as cheap as you like, because I am. Uh, to be fair, I'm not so bothered about the money, um, financially speaking. It's more the fact that you're essentially giving my life validation and purpose. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not, not that I'm meaning to plug on the heartstrings or anything. But, uh, yeah, if I'm, I'm sat here in a pit of despair thinking my life has no meaning. So if you guys keep donating with Patreon and stuff like that, it gives me a little spark of hope that my life has meaning. It's took us 36 years to find that. <laughs> <laughs> and we finally got some, so don't take it away from us, please. That's a, that's a plea to everyone. That's a plea to Sega not to sue us for using their music. That's a plea to Dino for don't come down on us for not liking your terrible game. Uh, have I forgot anyone? People who've who've had seizures, please don't take anything that we've said to heart and come after us. Leave us the alone, Germans? please. Yeah, we, well, just because of the amount of Nazi references, we're really sorry. Only, only a subset of the Germans, to be fair. I mean, they should be as outraged as we are about <laughs> if, if we're being honest. So, I don't think we need to worry about that too much. But yeah, if if you have supported us or you're thinking about supporting us, I mean, even likes and and shares and comments on Facebook. You don't understand. I know all creators say it, likes and shares really help. They honestly do, because the more people that like and share it, the more people that see it, the more chance people will potentially enjoy it. So if you can do that for us, share a couple of posts on Facebook or like a couple of posts or follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, etc. It really does make a difference if, if you can't or don't want to to kick us some money. That would be another great way to, to help us out. And also, 
if you join us on Facebook or Instagram, you can send us suggestions. We might not do them, especially if it's review Shenmue now. But um, we do see them all and we will consider them. We are considering a couple of suggestions we've had for some of the extra content episodes. So yeah, it all it all helps. But until next episode, I think all that's left to say is that's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.